now and evermore. Jesus is my plea. You can be seated. And as you do, join me in prayer. Father, we, we love You. We love the Lord Jesus. Spirit, we love You. We thank You, great triune God, that You first loved us. We come to You now and we pray with the psalmist to open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in Your Word. Satisfy us this morning with Your unfailing love. And oh Lord, as we prayed at the beginning of this series on Romans, so I pray again, I don't want to do this without you. In fact, I can't do this without you. This is meaningless without you. So please help. Please speak to us with power. Come and mess us up, O oh Lord. Have your way. Accomplish your will. Sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. We pray you do that in the great and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Church family, I love you. Thank God for you. It's so good to see you. So good to worship with you. Please turn in your Bible to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 31. The plan, God willing, is to spend two Sundays on this majestic passage as we move toward Resurrection Sunday on April the 9th, just two weeks from right now. This passage, as you know, is Paul's transition away from human depravity and divine wrath to God's righteousness revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I cannot think of a better passage to help prepare us to celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday this year. In fact, church family, we can't see it all. I know we can't see it all, but that's not going to keep us from trying over these next few weeks. We have so much glory to see over these next few weeks. Even yet, still today, we have this text, we have Mark Morgan's baptism ahead of us still this morning. Next Sunday, God willing, we're to keep staring at this text, and we have the Lord's Supper next Sunday on Palm Sunday. On Good Friday, April the 7th, we're going to stare at the death of our Savior and partake of the Lord's Supper again together on Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday in the culmination of it all as we consider our Savior risen from the dead and three more baptisms on Easter Sunday, it is going to be a whirlwind from here till then. And so I just invite you to come behold, come see, come experience, come taste the goodness and kindness and grace of the Lord here at Miller Heights Baptist Church. We'll follow along this morning as we begin this study of this epic passage Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the triune God. May Father, Son, and Spirit mark us with its truth. Well, beloved, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for our lives. All Scripture is inspired by God. Every word from God's Word is a priceless treasure of divine wisdom. And there is no more important paragraph in all of Scripture than this one here at the end of Romans chapter 3. That's not just my opinion. Martin Luther, the great reformer, called this paragraph the chief point and central place of the Bible. The chief point and central place of all Scripture. New Testament scholar Leon Morris calls this the most important paragraph ever written. I don't know how you decide what the most important paragraph of all the most of all the important paragraphs that have been written throughout the history of the world, but just to say that this paragraph is in the running for the most important paragraph ever written. The reason this passage is so important is because it contains the full weight of the gospel in just a few short sentences. This is a succinct summation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so Jerry Bridges called this passage the most clear and complete explanation of the gospel in all the Bible. This passage contains both the need of every human and the solution of God while at the same time telling us why God has held this solution out to us. Friends, I submit to you, as I consider the importance of this paragraph, I submit to you that the truth of this passage is better and more helpful than 50,000 books or talk shows, or blog posts, or therapy sessions about how to solve life's problems. 
There is enough glory in this text to sustain our joy in Jesus the Christ for the next 8 billion years and beyond. We need to hear this. We need to not just hear this. We need to be mastered by the truth of this paragraph. And so the plan is for this morning, now, and next Sunday, God willing, to just marvel at the truth of this paragraph and just to draw your attention to what is here in hopes that our eyes will be open in such a way that we would see the beauty and the depth of the loveliness of what our God has done for us in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So let's soak ourselves. Let's bathe ourselves in the word of this passage and the truth of this passage. Let's draw near to this holy mountain in hopes of being changed by its truth. Now, before I highlight five specific truths that I want to unpack about the significance of this passage, I want to just draw your attention to the main point, the main emphasis of this passage. Notice the repeated use of the words righteousness and justification righteousness, and justification. Just notice them as I highlight them. Verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. Verse 24, and are justified by His grace. Verse 25, This was to show God's righteousness. Verse 26, it was to show His righteousness so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith. Verse 30, who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. And so Paul here is declaring the righteousness of the God who justifies by faith. The righteous God who justifies by faith. Now remember the context. Paul started to declare the righteousness of God back in chapter 1, verse 17. In fact, turn back there. Let's just remind ourselves of what Paul did. In chapter 1, verse 16, he said, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. He's not ashamed of this gospel because of its power. And then he says, look at verse 17, chapter 1, verse 17, for in it, that is, in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. Remember what he did immediately after that. After saying the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, Paul spent from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20 saying, we are all unrighteous. And now he's ready to pick back up with showing us the righteousness of God manifested in the gospel. Now, as I mentioned, when we looked at chapter 1, verse 17, the words righteousness and justified are both the same root word in the original language. So 
our English usage here obscures this. We can't immediately see this connection, but the original readers would have immediately seen this connection and picked up on this, that Paul is using the same word that we translate righteousness and justified. So, for example, if we wanted to translate it a different way, chapter 3, verse 21 could read, but now... The justification from or of God has been manifested. Or we could use the righteousness language. Verse 24 could read, and are righteous by His grace. Now we don't use the word righteous in English, but it captures the connection here with the righteousness of God being manifested in the gospel. And so as we concluded when we talked about chapter 1, verse 17, the righteousness of God doesn't merely refer to an attribute or characteristic of God's character, but it mainly refers to what God does in declaring sinners to be righteous in His sight. Surely it refers to who God is. He is righteous. But it also refers to what God does for His people. He declares people to be right in His sight. Sight. He gives His righteousness to those who believe. He justifies the unjust. God righteouses the unrighteous. So in the Gospel, Paul says the justification of God for, of the unrighteous is manifested, is revealed. This is the incredible news. The good news of the Gospel. Unrighteous sinners can be seen as righteous or justified by God. This passage and the whole book of Romans is declaring how sinners can have a right standing with God. Is this not incredible news after all we've seen in chapters 1-3 through that there is a means of righteousness in God's sight. That God declares sinners to be right, to have a right standing with Him. And so... As part one of the exposition of this passage, I want to highlight five epic truths about the righteousness of God that is about having a right relationship with God. Here's number one. God gives righteousness, that is, He justifies, but not through obeying the law. God gives righteousness, He justifies, but He does not do that through obeying the law. Notice how this passage begins. It begins with a contrast. But now. This but now signals a major shift in the flow of the book of Romans. Paul has just spent all of this time in the first three chapters driving home the point that all of us are unrighteous before God. From chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3:20, the point has been that every human, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of social status, all people have forsaken God and have trampled on His glory. And thus, every person is under His condemnation and deserves His righteous wrath. Paul has indicted the entire human race. And friends, until we grasp the incredible depth of our sinfulness and the depth of God's wrath against our sin, what Paul says here in chapter 3, verse 21, will never be sweet to us. This but now will never be sweet unless we grasp just how unrighteous we are. 
And so he goes on and on for three chapters about God's response to our sinfulness and how we are unrighteous before God. And then he says, but now. This is a sweet contrast. But now. We are unrighteous. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And so this is a passage about how a righteousness that we can have that unrighteous people like us can have through faith in Jesus. Notice it is the righteousness of God or from God. It is not our righteousness. It is a righteousness of or from God. It is a righteousness that, is, that exists outside of us. Or as some have called it, it's an alien righteousness. It's a, a righteousness that's foreign to us. It's God's own righteousness. It's not a righteousness, notice, that comes through anything we can do. This is why Paul says in verse 21 that it has been manifested, notice, apart from the law. A righteousness of God has been manifested that's apart from the law. This right standing with God doesn't come to good people who do what they're supposed to do. There are no people like that, but that's not how it comes if it were even possible. It is manifested, Paul says, apart from the law. Meaning, this righteousness doesn't come by keeping God's law, by keeping God's rules. In fact, look up at chapter 3, verse 20. Again, we saw this last week. Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being will be righteous, justified, in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No one, Paul says, is declared righteous by God by obeying the law. Because there is none righteous. Not even one. And so Paul couldn't be any more emphatic in this contrast about how God's righteousness does not come to us. It does not come to us through law-keeping. It doesn't come through ritual or obedience. It is apart from the law. Although Paul says the law and the prophets clearly testify to this righteousness of God, he means that the Word of God pointed toward this alien righteousness from God. This righteousness, this justification is not something new Paul is saying. He didn't make this up. The Old Testament proclaimed this righteousness. But now, we we have not just the pointers. We have not just the shadows But we have the manifestation of this righteousness. We now have the righteousness fully manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is why this but now is so sweet. So, if this righteousness, if this right standing with God does not come through keeping the law, then how does it come to us? Well, Notice verse 22 says, it is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so that's the second truth. Number two, God gives righteousness, that is, He justifies through faith in Jesus. God justifies through faith in Jesus. So what is the righteousness of God that has been revealed in the Gospel? Verse 22 says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So faith or belief is how God justifies us. A right standing with God comes by faith 
alone. It is not by works of the law, but it is by faith in Jesus. Now, it's very important that we understand what faith is and what faith is not. Faith is an attitude of coming to God with empty hands. Faith is a receiving of Jesus as all the righteousness from God that we need. Faith is a receiving of who Jesus is and what He has done for us. So listen, faith itself has no merit at all. Faith is not a work that justifies us, but rather it is the instrument that connects us to the One who justifies. Jesus is the One who justifies, and it's faith, this receiving of Him, that connects us to the One who justifies. And so it's the object of our faith that is most important, not the faith itself. God justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Not just those who have faith. It's not just those who have belief who are justified. It's those who believe in the righteous One in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's important to grasp because I think so many people think of faith as some kind of work that they have to perform. As if we conjure up enough faith to surrender ourselves, to have this superior spiritual insight to know to believe in Jesus. No, as verse 24 is going to say clearly, justification by God is by His grace as a gift. We receive this righteousness freely. That is, without a cause in us. And so if you think of your faith as the cause of your justification before God, what you'll start doing is you'll, you'll stop looking to Jesus to save you and you'll start looking at your faith. Right? Do I have enough faith? Is my faith too weak? Is my faith genuine? And you'll, you'll get all subjective and you'll start looking inside of yourself saying, I wonder if my faith is enough. Instead of saying, Jesus is enough. Like if that's how you live, constantly evaluating your faith and whether you have enough or not, you're going to be rattled every time you evaluate yourself, right? Your spiritual life is going to ebb and flow like a roller coaster if you base your relationship with God, your righteousness before God on whether your faith is genuine enough. That's a sure sign that you've turned faith into a work instead of looking to the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus. And so verse 22 is saying again, 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 that righteousness from God is not by works, is not by what we do, anything we do. It is only in and through and because of the work of Jesus Christ that we can be declared righteous by God. And so justification is by faith alone. Now, these first two truths that we've looked at, they are so important to understand. So important to understand as we seek then to live righteous lives in this world. When we understand justification is not by works, but only by faith in Jesus, we begin to then live out this righteousness looking to Jesus and not to our works and not to what we do. And I think far too many people, far too many Christians are living as if they can still earn God's righteousness by what they do, by their lives. We fall into this kind of thinking when we feel like somehow God loves us more because we read our Bible or we give some money or we attend church or we do this courageous act of obedience. 
it's newsflash. God could not love you any more than He does if you are in Christ. He has definitively shown His love for you at the cross of Jesus Christ. Friends, there is only one righteousness that God accepts. Only one righteousness in all the world. And listen to the good news. He has given it to us. The righteousness of Jesus. And that righteousness is imputed to us. It's credited to our account by faith in Jesus alone. Here's the third truth I want you to see in the text. God gives righteousness to, that is, He justifies everyone who believes without distinction since all are unrighteous. I know that's a long point, but it all needs to be said. God gives righteousness, that is, He justifies in His sight everyone who believes without distinction since all are unrighteous. So notice Paul's emphasis at the end of verse 22 on the fact that there are no distinctions concerning this righteousness of God. You see what he says? There is no distinction. He says in verse 22, it is for all who believe. It is not just for Jews or Gentiles. It is not just for rich or poor. It is not just for male or female. It is for all who believe because there is no distinction when it comes to receiving the righteousness of God. In fact, look down at verse 30. Paul says it emphatically, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. There is no distinction, Paul says. And that is incredibly Good news. And the reason there's no distinction is contained in verse 23. Notice this ground. He says, for or because. There's no distinction. Why, Paul? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I think verse 23 is a parenthesis meant to remind us of all that Paul has said from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. As if we've forgotten it so soon, Paul. You remind us again. (laughs) There is none righteous. Not even one. God has given us over to our unrighteousness. And therefore, Paul is again emphasizing the depth of our guilt before God. We are guilty. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Notice the tenses of the verbs in verse 23. The first verb, have sinned, is an aorist verb, which simply means it's a past completed action. All of us have sinned. This is the one thing we all have in common. We all have sinned. But the second verb in verse 23, the verb fall short, is a present tense verb which implies continual, ongoing action. And so Paul is describing comprehensive depravity here. We have sinned, and we constantly fall short of the glory of God. And so the picture is not, at one time we sinned, and now we've moved past that. No, the picture is, we have sinned, and we continually fall short of the glory of God. Now, we all know verse 23 If you grew up in church, you probably memorized this verse at a very young age, which means you grew up in a good church that taught the gospel. But however, we never talk about what this actually means. 
What does it mean that we have fallen short of the glory of God? What does that mean? Does that mean that we're supposed to be as glorious as God and we've somehow failed to attain that standard? No, we were not made to be as glorious as God. So what does this mean? Well, I think this this phrase points at the basic meaning of sin. Here's the very heart of what sin is. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. That's what sin is. You see, the Bible clearly says that you and I were created to glorify God. Isaiah 43, 7, God says, Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone whom I've called by my name, everyone whom I've created for my glory. We were created to display and radiate the worth and beauty of our God. This is why God made you. This is why you exist, that you would make much of your Creator. And what have we done? What have we done? We've done something absolutely shocking. We have failed to do the very thing for which we were created to do. The very thing we were made to do, we have not done. God has given us a purpose, and all of us have rebelled against that purpose. God has said, live for my glory. And we've looked at Him and said, nah, I think I'll live for my glory instead. And this is what sin is. Sin is a failure to do the very thing we were created to do. This is where all sin arises. All sin arises from not giving God the glory He deserves. And in that way, sin is cosmic treason. It's rebellion against the King of the universe. Now, as Pastor Jagar mentioned last Sunday... Some people do an etymology, an unhelpful etymology of the word sin, and they say it means something like to miss the mark. And they give this picture of of the archery, right? Of this this, uh, uh, shooting an arrow at a target. And what we usually think about is we barely miss the, the mark or we accidentally miss the mark. Oops, we aren't as good as we should be. Uh oh, I need a slap on the wrist. But that's not the picture of sin at all. The picture of sin is not someone who's trying really hard to glorify God, but they just can't quite get it. They just keep missing the bullseye just a little bit. No, the picture of sin is that we deliberately turn away from God's mark and intentionally shoot the exact opposite direction of God's target. In this way, we are all like Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games. We turn our arrow toward the sky with the sole purpose of bringing God's glory crashing down around us. In our sin, we hate God and His glory. We hate Him. We want to kill God. And Paul says, we're all in this category. Every one of us without distinction have sinned and have done the very thing that is opposite of what we were made to do. And because of our sin, Paul has made clear what we deserve. We deserve to be punished by the wrath of God for all eternity. In fact, chapter 2, verse 5, Paul said, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says the pantry of our lives is stocked full of the wrath of God that we have stored up because of our rebellion against Him. 
And this is why there's no distinction. This is why God offers his righteousness without distinction because none of us is closer to God's righteousness than any other. This is why the ground is level at the foot of the cross. This is why it doesn't matter what your net worth is or who you know or what family you grew up in or what works you've done because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. But then after this parenthesis in verse 23, Notice the good news that Paul moves to in verse 24. This is where Paul has been moving from the very start. Since chapter 1, verse 17, he has painted this black backdrop and this furious storm of our sin all so that we could see the sun breaking through the clouds in verse 24. And so notice the fourth truth. Number four, God gives righteousness. That is, He justifies by His grace, as a gift. God gives righteousness. He justifies by His grace as a gift. And so verse 24 is the solution. It's the solution to our guilt. It's the solution to our cosmic treason, to our rebellion against God. Here's how unrighteous people can have a right standing with God. Now notice the four phrases in verse 24. Four phrases... We're going to look at the first three under this fourth point, and then we'll see the last phrase under the final point. And so just consider these phrases in verse 24. Are justified by His grace as a gift. Are justified by His grace as a gift. Paul first says, and are justified, or are righteous. So the people in verse 22 who put their faith in Jesus, who believe in Jesus, those people, Paul says, are justified without distinction of race or gender or social status. All who believe are justified. Notice that the verb there at the beginning of verse 24 is in the passive voice. You remember back in seventh grade English class learning the difference between active and passive verbs? Right? Active is where the subject is doing the action. Fred hit the ball. Passive is when the, the subject is acted upon. The reverse, the, the, it receives the action. Fred was hit by the ball. And so this is a passive verb, not an active verb. Which means what? We are not the actors in our justification. We are not the actors. We are not the ones doing the justification. We are the ones who are justified. We don't justify ourselves. God is the justifier, as verse 26 says. And so let's make sure we understand what justification means. Oh, children, I long for you to grow up in a church that teaches you what the word justification means. Here's what it means. Justification is that act of God whereby He declares sinners to be righteous in His sight. That action of God is not our action, it's the action of God whereby He declares sinners, unrighteous people, to be right in His sight. In justifying us, God declares the guilty to be not guilty based on the work of Jesus. By justifying us, God credits the righteousness of Jesus to our account so that He sees us as righteous and accepts us based on the righteousness of Jesus alone. And so justification really has two parts to it. In justification, God declares us to be not guilty and 
He gives us Jesus' own righteousness. Our sin is taken from us, and Jesus' righteousness is given to us. And so listen, justification doesn't actually make us righteous. We don't become actually righteous in justification. Rather, it's a declaration of God to see us as righteous, to accept us as righteous. It's a legal declaration. And so how can God do this? How can God declare unrighteous people to be, un, to be righteous? That's the second and third phrases, and really the fourth one of verse 24. Notice, secondly, Paul says, we are justified by His grace. And third, Paul says, as a gift, or your translation may say, freely. And so as if it's not enough that he's already hammered home the point that it's only by faith in Jesus and not by works, Paul then continues to heap phrase upon phrase upon phrase that show we can't earn this. It's only a gift of God's grace. Friends, if we could get this truth, it would change our lives. This is what I mean when I say this passage is more helpful than 50,000 books and seminars on how to make life work. If we could get this, everything changes the moment you embrace the freeness and giftness of justification. It's by His grace And it is as a gift. Friends, grace cannot be earned. Grace is the good that comes to you from someone who owes you nothing. You can't work for grace. It no longer is grace if you have to work for it or pay for it. There's only one way you get grace. And it's as a gift. And justification is by His grace as a gift. The phrase as a gift literally is the the phrase without a cause. That is, there's no calls in us for God to justify us. Notice again how Paul emphasizes this in verse 28. He says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So you cannot work to obtain this righteousness and you cannot pay for it. It is free. It is as a gift. This is beyond amazing. This is beyond amazing. But the question we should be asking is, how can this be? Like, How can a just judge, how can a righteous God justify guilty sinners like that just freely? And that's the final truth I want you to see, begin to see this morning and even more fully see next Sunday, God willing. Number five, God gives righteousness. That is, He justifies through the sacrifice of Jesus. God justifies through the sacrifice of Jesus. Notice that last phrase of verse 24. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here's the ground. Here's the basis for our right standing with God. It is in the death of the sinless Son of God. So take note, the ground our cause is not in us. It is based on the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Justification comes to us freely, friends. It comes as a gift of God's grace, but make no mistake about it, justification is not cheap. It comes to us at the highest cost imaginable, the cost of the life of the Son of God. Redemption is one of those words we don't here often in our culture today, but it's a precious biblical word. This word has a rich history in the Old Testament. Think of the exodus and the redemption of God's people, but also there was this context it was used in where it was 
we talked about a payment to release someone from a debt. You see, in the ancient world, it didn't take very much to get caught into debt. If you had a bad crop one year, you would have to sell yourself into slavery to pay off the debts you owed from your failed crop. But God's law throughout the law made provision for people to be redeemed. In fact, one of the laws has to do with the kinsman redeemer who could come and buy your debt and set you free. In fact, Leviticus 25.25 gives this allowance. It says, If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. And so redemption is the payment of a price to free someone from debt or slavery. And Paul says we have a debt we could not possibly pay. We are slaves to our sin. But oh, we have a redeemer. Oh, we have a kinsman redeemer. Through Jesus' death, the price has been paid to redeem us so that we might be justified in God's sight. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our unrighteousness. Through His precious blood, He purchased this right standing with God, this justification. And so the cross is the solution to our guilt and it is the revelation, the manifestation of the righteousness of God. Jesus gave His life to give us justification by His grace as a gift. And God willing, next week we're going to see how God Himself has provided this sacrifice to absorb His own righteous wrath. Now by way of application, let me conclude with three encouragements. So how shall we as believers apply this passage? And all three of these things I'm going to say all have to do with internal things about what we should feel and believe and love. Praying now that God would make these things true of us. Here's the first application I want you to see. Don't trust in your righteousness at all. Don't trust in your righteousness at all. And I mean at all. There is none good, not even one. There's no righteousness in any person in this room to justify you before God. Martin Luther once said, there is no greater arrogance than to not desire to be justified by faith in Christ alone. No greater arrogance than to not be, to not want to be justified by faith in Jesus alone. And you know why that's true, right? That's true because if you don't want to be justified by faith in Jesus, then you must think you have enough righteousness on your own to make you righteous before God. Verse 27, Paul says, all human boasting is excluded in response to justification by faith alone. The only proper response to justification, the truth of justification, is that we would relinquish all boasting in ourselves. We relinquish all boasting in our own righteousness. And just in case, just in case I'm not being clear enough, let me say it this way. There is no work or works that you can do to make God see you as righteous. None. You can't even conjure up enough faith on your own. Your works won't save you. Baptism won't save you. Taking the Lord's Supper won't save you. A lifetime of church attendance and serving won't save you. There is only one righteous Savior, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I urge you, 
Do not trust in your righteousness, but trust in the righteousness of Jesus alone. Secondly, application, love the truth of justification by faith alone. Love this truth. Study this truth. Delight in this truth. Bask in this truth. The reformers would declare that justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. In other words, if we are weak on justification by faith alone, we will lose the gospel. And so hold this truth tightly, as tight as you can, and allow nothing to water down this truth. And friends, I'm convinced that the precious gift of assurance from God, the assurance of our salvation, will be in direct relation to how much we embrace and love this truth of justification by faith alone. The great John Bunyan struggled with the assurance of his salvation and his relationship with God. And it was Romans 3.24 that gave him the breakthrough that he needed. Here's what he wrote. Bunyan said, Just then as I was walking up and down in the house, the most dreadful state of mind came upon me. This Word of God took hold of my heart. Ye are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24 And Bunyan said, Oh, what a turn this made upon me. Oh, what a sudden change it made. It was as though I was awakened out of a nightmare. Now God seemed to be saying to me, Sinner, you think that you cannot save your soul because of your sins? Behold, my Son is here, and I look upon Him, not on you. And I shall deal with you according to as I am pleased with Him. And Bunyan said, By this I was made to understand that God can justify a sinner at any time by looking upon Christ and imputing Christ's benefits to Him. You see, friends, this is where true peace is found. It is in the assurance that we have been justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption of Jesus. Because of the cross, we have forgiveness and cleansing of our unrighteousness, and we have been accepted by God as right in His sight. Jesus is a great Savior for sinners, friends. Love this truth. Love this truth. Study this truth. Go deeper into this truth. And finally, number three, look to the Redeemer now and always. The most important application of this passage in Romans is to look to Jesus now. Right now. Look upon Jesus. See Him as worthy to be trusted. And do that for the rest of your life and for the rest of eternity. Listen, let me say it again. Faith doesn't save anyone. Jesus saves Jesus is the Savior. So look to Him. Trust in Him. Treasure Jesus alone. He is the object and heart and center of our faith. And so may we always be able to say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we want to say that this morning before You in Your presence my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean, but wholly trust on Jesus' name. Lord, I pray this morning that people in this room, like the Apostle Paul, would be able to look at all of their righteousness, all of their good deeds, all of their advantages, and they would say over them, rubbish. 
I count it all as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I pray that the response to the glorious truth of justification by faith alone would be lives of righteousness and obedience and faith in You. Oh God, let this truth fuel us to be people who obey You, trust You, and live our lives for You. Lord, we need You. We need You. Help us to not look to our own righteousness at all. Help us to look to Jesus alone. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this passage. Lord, may it be true of us. And I pray You'd help us to stand on the solid rock of Christ. And I pray in Jesus' name alone. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.